We always seek to worship Jesus and to focus on him. But I hope that maybe in a little bit, a different way, you notice this morning uh, just how focused we have been on Jesus. Jesus is the most beautiful one that we could ever imagine. A love for Jesus is what makes the Christian life go. The one thing that the people of Ephesus heard from Jesus was they had lost the love they had at first. In this complex world, it's easy to talk about worshiping Jesus. It's a lot more difficult to actually functionally live that way. We're going to talk this morning about the preeminence of Jesus. That he's first. He's supreme. He's over all. And yet in this complicated world, we can often become disoriented. We can lose focus. We can be drawn off track. Lose our direction. I heard a story this past week about a young gal that bought a car that was filled with all kinds of high-tech gadgets. And on the return trip from the dealer, it started raining. She reached down to turn a knob that she thought would turn on the windshield wipers. Instead, suddenly, a message showed up on the dashboard. Turn 360 degrees. She was running with traffic. She wasn't going to do that. But it stayed on the dashboard. She got home, got out the owner's manual, and she noticed that instead of turning on the windshield wiper, she had inadvertently turned off the directional system, the navigational system of the entire computer. And in order for her to sort of reset the directional system of her new car, she literally needed to drive it in a circle and then point it toward true north and punch a button. It's crazy. It's like what I got to do when I change the oil or reset anything else in a vehicle these days. But what do we do to reset spiritually? To reset spiritually, we need to keep our eyes on Jesus. The theme in Colossians is the Christ-centered life. And the focus this morning is the Christ-centered life through worshiping Jesus. Easier said than done. Remember what we know about the city of Colossae, about 120 miles east of Ephesus, which was on the western coast of Turkey. Very diverse, very cosmopolitan city. All kinds of views, all kinds of perspectives, all kinds of religions. Paul had never met the Colossians. He'd never been to their city, never even seen the church. But he realizes that they're being drawn away from a central focus on Christ. And if they're drawn away from Christ and they're buying into pluralism or what we call syncretism, where you start adding certain other views to the gospel, Paul knows they're headed for trouble. And so Paul composes 
in Colossians 1, this hymn of praise to Christ. Christology is the study of Jesus. And Colossians 1, 15 to 20, is some of the highest Christology in the entire Bible. It exalts Jesus above all else. It presents Jesus as the beautiful one. And Paul is seeking to call us to fall more deeply in love with Jesus. It's like Paul has presented a picture before our eyes more beautiful than anything imaginable. And he's calling us all back to the centrality of worshiping Jesus. Not primarily in song, although that's important as well, but what has preeminence in our hearts? Who has first place in our lives? Now, if you want to answer what is preeminent in your life, ask yourself the questions. What do you think about most of the time? That's what's preeminent in your life. What causes you to experience the deepest emotions of happiness, sadness, anger, frustration, satisfaction? Well, whatever causes you the deepest feelings is what is preeminent in your life. What do you dream about throughout the day, throughout the week? That's what's preeminent in your life. And oftentimes, can we just be honest? It's not Jesus. It's relationships, marriage, singleness, children, jobs, health. If we're to live the Christ-centered life, we need to worship Jesus. He needs to be preeminent in our hearts without one single rival. Let's read this hymn of Paul to Christ. Let's all stand in our reverence for God's word. The hymn is actually verses 15 to 20, but we're going to read through verse 23. This is the word of God. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If, indeed, you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, 
became a minister. May God bless the hearing and teaching of his inspired, infallible, inerrant, and authoritative word. This is God's word. He gave it to us because he loves us. And he wants us to see Jesus. And seeing Jesus to fall more deeply in love with him. Let's pray. And so, Father, we ask that you would remove the scales from our eyes. God, even as the disciples on the road to Emmaus, Jesus was right there, and they were kept from seeing him. And then you removed the scales, and they recognized they were seeing Jesus, and their hearts burned within them. Oh God, might we see Jesus today and might our hearts burn with passion and love for him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Uh, Covenant College is in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And uh, it is our denomination's college. We're part of the Presbyterian Church in America And Covenant College has as its motto, in all things, Christ preeminent. That is God's desire for our lives. In all things, in every arena, Jesus preeminent. In other words, that we would worship Jesus in our marriages, in our parenting, in our careers, in anything and everything, Jesus would be Preeminent. And Paul makes three assertions about Jesus that make up this hymn. Let's look at those three briefly. First of all, worship Jesus as the revelation of God. Look at verse 15. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. Now, there's a sense in which every one of us as human beings are image bearers. I mean, this takes us back to Genesis 1, when God said, let us make man in our image, male and female, he created them. We are image bearers. Now, what does that mean? That means that we were created by God, and what we're going to find out here briefly, actually through the agency of Jesus in creation, to reveal, reflect, and represent God on this planet. But We do it imperfectly because we're fallen, we're sinful, we're broken. Jesus was incarnate to perfectly reveal the image of God while he lived this life on this planet. That doesn't mean, however, that Jesus ever had a beginning Jesus had no beginning. Jesus has no end. So what we're going to focus on this morning is going to take a little bit of brain power. On the one hand, we're going to be exalting Jesus because that's what this hymn does. We're going to be talking about the Christ-centered life. On the other hand, we still have to keep in mind our Trinitarian God. That God is one God who exists in three persons. And this morning's passage exalts the second person of the Trinity, who is Jesus. And Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the perfect reflection of God's nature, of God's heart. The author of Hebrews puts it this way, He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of, 
of his nation, na- nature. That, that's talking about a coin having an imprint of Caesar or an imprint of George Washington. And the likeness is perfect. Paul is saying, the Spirit is telling us that Jesus is the exact representation and reflection of the Father. Remember Philip in the Gospel of John asked Jesus, show us the Father and it'll be enough for us. And Jesus said, Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Now again, that's confusing because the Son isn't the Father and the Father's not the Son and the Son's not the Spirit. Spirit's not the Father and yet they are all one God. But nonetheless, Jesus perfectly reveals the Father. And then in verse 15, the second part, it says, Jesus is also the firstborn of all creation. Now that can sound confusing. Because when we think of firstborn, we think of something that was conceived, created, and then born first. And that might give you the thought, well, does that mean that Jesus was created No, it's primarily talking about the eternal second person of the Trinity being conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, not created. Firstborn in the Middle East, in the Middle Eastern culture, meant the one who was heir to all of the inheritance. Firstborn meant the one who ruled over the household, over all the siblings, and took over once the father was out of the picture. And of course, that's where it breaks down because God the Father is never out of the picture. The point is, in reference to us, Jesus is above us all. He is the eternal God. And as we recognize how he reveals the Father's heart. It's just to melt us. It's just to call us to behold him and to love him more. The firstborn of all creation means he's eternal. It also means he's sovereign. Where are you struggling to trust Jesus these days? Where are you struggling to really rest in his power, in his plan, in his wisdom? As we worship Jesus, we're reminded he's in control. He rules and reigns from the Father's right hand. Look at verse 16. For by him all things were created. All things were created through him and for him. In other words, Jesus is not merely the agent of creation. He's the purpose of creation. The whole reason anything is on this planet is for the glory and knowledge and service and honor of Jesus. It's all about Him. Are we worshiping Jesus that way? Or, like Israel, are we a people who honor Jesus with our lips? 
while our hearts are far from him. As we look at this picture of Jesus as the revelation of God, might our hearts be warmed to our Savior. And then it says in verse 7, and he is before all things and in him all things hold together. In other words, several senses here. Literally, without Jesus and his power and control, our atoms would blow apart and the world would be disintegrated. Jesus literally holds the universe together. He keeps our gravity what it's supposed to be. He keeps the earth spinning. He keeps us the right distance from the sun. And that's just our little dinky solar system. The universe, Jesus holds together by his power. But not only in that way does Jesus hold things together, it means that life is only coherent when seen in light of Jesus. Life only makes sense when processed in line with Jesus and the gospel. What are you looking for oftentimes, like the Colossians, beyond Jesus for life to make sense? What are you looking for in addition to Jesus to maintain control or to avoid chaos? Whatever we're looking to in addition to Jesus means that Jesus is not preeminent in our hearts. I've said before that when you get down to it, every one of us, because of our brokenness, worships at some level a figment of our own imagination. Now, I don't mean we're, Jesus isn't real. What I'm saying is, because of our brokenness, our background, our family of origin, our wounds, what kind of church we've been in, what kind of Bible knowledge we have, every one of us, worships what is actually a figment of our imagination partially because what we have in our hearts at some level is nothing like who God really is. I mean, it's something, obviously. Well, let me give you an illustration. I had a professor in seminary decades ago now. His name was Scott McKnight, and Scott's still a a, a scholar, writes a lot of books, and he's at a different seminary now. But, but Scott used to give, or I should call him Dr. McKnight, used to give this entry exam to all of his incoming students. He still does, for what I imagine. And 24 questions, the first 24 questions, were questions related to what the students believe God is like. Then there was a second set of 24 questions. And they were more personal about their individual lives and how they think and what they feel. And listen to the conclusion. By the way, this study has been repeated over and over and over and over again. So it's pretty accurate. The test results suggest that everyone thinks Jesus is actually like them. 
that even though we like to think we are becoming more like Jesus, the reverse is probably more the case. We're constantly trying to make Jesus more like us. How might you be doing that? How might you be creating God in your image just like he created you in his? Jesus is the perfect revelation of the Father. Look, all scriptures inspired. It's all inerrant and infallible and important, authoritative. But there is a uniqueness to the Gospels in that it reveals Jesus in fresh ways to us. Read the Gospels and know Jesus. Worship Jesus as the revelation of God. Secondly, worship Jesus as the head of the church. Look at verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church. Now, Paul usually writes of Jesus as the body, and we're members of the body. He is the body, and we're an ear or a nose or a knee or an ankle. But here Paul changes his metaphor, and he says Jesus is the head of the body. Then later on in Colossians 2, Paul warns us about being disconnected from the head. Now, that's pretty graphic. What happens when you're disconnected from the head? You're decapitated. You've got, you've got nothing to carry on your life. And that's what Paul's saying. Jesus, as the head of the church, is our life. We must stay connected to him. Much like in the agricultural illustration of, of Paul, of Jesus in John 15 with the vine and the branches, where Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. As the branch cannot bear fruit unless it abides in the vine, so you cannot bear fruit unless you abide in me. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So part of worshiping Jesus, part of the Christ-centered life, is constantly abiding in the vine or constantly being connected to the head. How do we do that? By grace, by constantly looking to Him, trusting Him, living by faith, not adding anything to Him, not Jesus plus, but constantly returning to Jesus as the head, the source of our life. He needs, I mean, picture everything that comes from the head, the blood flow, the brain stem, the brain, Everything in life is dependent upon the brain. Then he says in verse 18, the second part, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Jesus isn't merely the agent of creation. He is also the agent of the new creation. Jesus is not merely the one who spoke and the worlds were created. He's also the one who speaks and brings us new life. Jesus is the creator of the universe. He's also creator of the new humanity. Jesus is the head of the church, the body of Christ, those who trust in him. Look at verse 19. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. By the way, if there's ever anybody that wants to argue with you over whether Jesus is God, this is the passage to take them to. This is the highest Christology in the entire Bible. This is what reveals, no matter how you slice it, Jesus is 
God. And that'll be critical what I'm going to say in a few moments. But notice, as our head, look what he does. Through his finished work, he presents us holy, blameless, and above reproach. Now, the Greek actually uses alliteration for memorization so that we wouldn't forget it. But there's no way to bring it out in English. What basically he's saying is Christ as the head, as we're connected to the head, he presents us before the Father holy, sinless, presented before God sinless, righteous, as if we'd never sinned or been sinners. And above reproach, well, a better translation perhaps might be free from accusation. How much shame do we live under? How much self-condemnation do we put ourselves under as God's people, the church? But if we know Christ, Christ's finished work on our behalf, his obedient life, his substitutionary death, has brought us to the place before God where we are free from accusation. And if we lose focus on Jesus as our head, then we start looking elsewhere for peace, elsewhere for our identity. I've told you uh, recently that uh, one of the things that uh, Laurie and I have gone through, in addition to a bunch of other stuff over the past several months, has, has been that my identity has been completely and utterly stolen. Uh, I am now unemployed as far as the state of Alabama is concerned. They're actually trying to give me money, and I'm having to tell them constantly, I'm still, I'm still employed. Somebody has signed themselves up using all my information. It has been such a pain. I've had to call the state. I've had to call the Department of Labor. I've had to call the police. I've had to call all of my banks, all of my credit card companies. I've had to spend hours trying to recapture my identity. And yet in the Colossians and in the church today, how many hours are needlessly wasted because we have allowed ourselves to be defined by something other than our head. That we've begun to add other buttresses to Jesus to help us feel significant or secure or purposeful or loved. And trying to tell the state of Alabama you're not who they think you are is nothing compared to losing your identity in Christ. Keep worshiping Jesus as the head of the church, as the revelation of God. And then lastly, worship Jesus as the reconciler of all. Look at verse 20. (laughs) I mean, all my points are literally right from the verses. Verse 20, and through him to reconcile to himself all things. Now, let me tell you first of all what that's not saying. All things doesn't always mean all things the way you think it means all things all the time. With me? See, if Jesus reconciled all things, literally, then there'd be no reason for us to have missions. 
There'd be no reason for us to have as our mission engaging every neighbor with the surprising power of grace over the fence of our backyard, over the mountain into the city, overseas, or even over the pew in front and around us so people can hear the gospel. If, if Jesus truly reconciled all things in the sense of all things, then everybody's saved. Universalism. And there are people in our day that actually teach that. That's not what the text says. Okay? The text says all things, but it's not what the text means. See, the Jewish people thought that they were the only chosen people. And the New Testament is constantly using the word all to mean what is known as a representative universalism. That there are people from every tongue, every tribe, every language, every nation on earth. But not every single person in every tribe, every nation, every tongue. Jesus came to reconcile all things, meaning people from every nation, but also meaning all things, humanity and creation itself. That's how beautiful Jesus is. In Romans 8, we're told that all creation groans. Because of our sin, all creation groans. And all creation longs to be set free which will happen when Jesus returns and sets up the new Jerusalem. So all things, in that sense, have been and will be reconciled. Now, the other thing that's interesting about this hymn is usually when we talk about reconciliation, which means enemies becoming friends, hostile parties getting peace, usually we think in terms of God and his wrath and anger over our sin and sinfulness. And we therefore need to be reconciled to God. And the Bible does teach that. Don't, don't get me wrong. But let's let the Bible say what it says when it says it. And the Bible's not teaching that in this particular context. As a matter of fact, look what it says in verse 21. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil. You see what Paul's saying there? Paul's saying, we're the ones that are born God-haters. We're the ones born angry at God. Now, does that mean God's not a God of wrath? Of course he is. That's not what this passage is focusing on. This passage is focusing on us being God-haters. Our hearts needing to be transformed. Our hostility and anger and hatred for God needed to be taken away. And the text tells us that's exactly what Jesus has done through his body, by his blood, on the cross. You see, there's a double, double reconciliation that occurs for the people of God. Yes, God's wrath is appeased. Yes, God is satisfied with the sacrifice of Christ. But also, there's an element of Christ's work that subdues the hostility of our own hearts towards God. See, if you've got a bad relationship, both people have their issues. Trust me, I've been a pastor long enough. It's always both and. Well, 
Okay, always, always messes things up. It's usually, almost always, both parties. Yeah, the problem is everyone always thinks they're the exception. We're not getting into counseling this morning. The point is, when there's real problems, both parties are hostile toward the other. And that's true in us as well. Now, as we become growing in Christ, by Christ's grace, we become less hostile, but still wrestle and are tempted by it. Now, what we tend to do is in order to say, well, the Christian life's not working. I need to do something more to feel more reconciled, or I need to do something more to make this Christian life work. This is where the Colossians began to fail. You start looking to other things in addition to Jesus to make life work. And that's why Paul says in verse 23, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast. In other words, he says in verse 23 at the end there, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. Listen, it is so tempting when we're frustrated with the Christian life or we're despairing or we're losing heart. It is so tempting easy to take your eyes off Jesus and go search for something to add to Jesus. It must be Jesus and something I don't know about the Christian life I need to learn. You see that? See how subtle that is? That's Jesus plus right there. Paul says, not shifting your hope from Jesus and the gospel. I know the Christian life is hard. I know it can be frustrating. I know that Growth seems to be glacially slow. I get it. I'm just like you. That's what I experienced too. But the temptation is to start looking in other places when only Jesus is the reconciler. Jesus reconciles us with God. Jesus reconciles us with ourselves. Jesus reconciles us with others. And yet we live in a world where everybody's always telling us to look to Jesus and something else. I hate to admit it, but as we close, uh, one of my favorite comedies is Talladega Nights. There, it's out. Now, it's, listen, it's got some rough parts, so I'm not saying I recommend it. Maybe I've only seen, you know, the cleaned up version on cable television. The point is, it's about this guy named Ricky Bobby who is a NASCAR driver. It's called Talladega Nights because, of course, Talladega down the road. They just had the Geico 500 last week. And uh, in, the, in the Talladega 500 in the movie, Ricky Bobby crashes his car. Now, uh, he crashes his car and he's convinced he's on fire. There's nothing wrong with him. It's all on his mind. But he's convinced he's on fire. And as he's running around the racetrack out of his car, this is what he says. Help me, Jesus. Help me, Jewish God. Help me, Allah. Help me, Tom Cruise. Use your witchcraft. Help me, Oprah Winfrey. There's an author named Mark Clark who comments on this scene and says that our culture asserts that worshiping one God doesn't necessarily exclude the other gods. That's rampant around the world and in our country right now. 
So don't limit yourself to just one God when you can have them all. Mahatma Gandhi, Mahatma Gandhi once said this, my position is that all great religions are fundamentally equal. Oprah Winfrey says, one of the biggest mistakes human beings make is to believe there's only one way. Actually, there are many diverse paths leading to God. See, pluralism's basic premise is that all religions are true, or at least partly true. So learn from all of them. And in our synchronistic culture that picks and chooses, it is narrow-minded and judgmental to say that there's only one way. And so we begin to maybe grow weak need in our conviction. And so Paul writes a hymn and says, Jesus is God. Jesus is the creator. Jesus is the redeemer, the only redeemer. Jesus is the restorer of all things. And one day, Every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus and Jesus alone is Lord. And so what's the application? Worship Jesus. Trust Him completely. Surrender to Him entirely. Obey Him fully. Serve Him continually. Love him constantly. You don't need to run around in circles to reset. We just need to keep our eyes on Jesus. Let's pray. Father, if there's anybody here this morning that doesn't yet know Jesus as Savior and Lord, might today be the day of their salvation. Open their eyes. Again, think of those disciples on the road to Emmaus. We, we can't see unless you open our eyes. And Lord, for some of us, maybe we're losing heart or losing hope in Jesus only. Lord, may we not shift our focus off of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus, thank you for being such a wonderful Savior, a beautiful Savior. I think of the hymn, Fairest Lord Jesus. You are so fair. God, warm our hearts toward your Son. Might we live for him, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand and hear the benediction, the promise of God's mercy and grace in the only Redeemer and Savior, Jesus Christ. Receive it. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Abba Father and the fellowship and transforming power of the Holy Spirit be with you now and always. Amen. Amen.